Hello, I'm Lawrence Woodruff, and my co-host has created open source texts for classes he has taught. And I'm Michael Ralph, and my co-host is considering creating open source texts for classes he teaches. Professional growth involves ongoing reflection and dialogue. So join us as we discuss education research while drinking beer. Today we are drinking Rye on Rye, a rye ale aged in Templeton Rye whiskey barrels from the Boulevard Brewing Company. Aged in Templeton Rye barrels is an intriguing prospect. I love Templeton Rye. I love Templeton Rye. And this has got this has got a lighter color that is reminiscent of what a whiskey might look like. Well, uh, my initial feelings about this trepidation because it is an ale, not a stout. It's, yeah. a, it's a little, it's a little clearer on the um, spectrum than I than I generally prefer. But I'm tempted by the name and and the content. So we'll see how it goes. Yeah, I can't wait to get into this. This month, we're going to talk to a researcher who has worked on comparisons between screens and digital media, and how we might use open source resources to better present material to students. Later, we're gonna read some research about what teachers can do to better support student metacognition with how they speak to the class. And so for our first segment, we welcome Dr. Virginia Clinton, who is an assistant professor of educational foundations and research at the University of North Dakota. She teaches courses on research methods and on how people learn. I read Savings Without Sacrifice, a case report on open source textbook adoption where we compare the use of open source textbooks versus traditional commercial textbooks at a collegiate classroom. And I read Reading from Paper Compared to Screens, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis. And those are only two of the papers that I know that you have put out recently. You've been doing a lot of work on research and reading. So why don't you tell us a little bit about how your work includes writing all of these many papers? Yes. So I became interested in the open source textbook adoption because uh, like many faculty members, I was really shocked and a little disturbed by how expensive textbooks were. Uh, I started out teaching at a community college several years ago, and the cost to take my course was about $540, which is pretty reasonable. You know, I, a lot of students who were lower SES, um, who were just paying out of pocket. And I was really shocked when I found out how much the textbooks cost because I ended up, the textbook I ended up getting was $230. So I basically increased the cost of my class by 50% with the textbook. And it's not like I picked a pricey textbook. That's just what they cost. So Moving forward, I later became an instructor and I had a very heavy course load and I had large enrollment classes, including introduction to psychology. So I had hundreds of students, which made me a very appealing person to market to by publishing companies. One week I had six publishing reps come to my office unannounced. I remember just thinking, like, is this really the best way for us to have students learn or get the best materials. You know, I had looked into lower price textbooks. I had taught my students all kinds of different tricks for getting cheaper textbooks. 
But I just really didn't feel like what they were getting was anywhere near worth the cost. Uh, So I had found out about open educational resources through an initiative at my institution. Uh, The University of North Dakota is part of the North Dakota University System was getting more interested in open educational resources. So I went to a training uh, and I learned about the different ways they were made and vetted because I was really concerned about the quality. yeah, a lot of people have this idea that free means that they're not any good, and that definitely was my initial concern. So I went, I reviewed a textbook very thoroughly. I wrote a review. Uh, it's actually on the Open Textbook Library at the University of Minnesota. I noted a number of mistakes, and I contacted the publisher because they actually had a link where you could click on it and inform the publisher that there were mistakes. The publisher being OpenStax, it's a different model than with the commercial publishing industry. They got back to me right away and they fixed it right away. I mean, one of the reasons they could is it's an electronic book, so it's easy to make changes and updates and corrections. You know, wanted to make sure that everything was fixed. Now, when I had a few years ago contacted a commercial publisher to point out a mistake, they just flat out were defining things wrong. I mean, it, it wasn't a, this is a controversy in the field. It was, this is inaccurate. They contacted me back and said, oh, well, thank you for letting me know. Can we talk to you about this? And I said, well, okay. Anyway, they called me up and they just started pushing for me to uh, make my students pay for another one of their products. It was really upset. So I adopted the textbook, but being a researcher, I really wanted to do a thorough examination and not just be like, well, okay, it seemed like it went okay for me. And If I was going to do this kind of change, I wanted to take advantage of the opportunity to really analyze it and use empirical data collection and, you know, look at student academic performance beforehand and look at their grades after and see, see if there were any differences, you know, if that $200 textbook actually made an improvement on their learning. So I I did the study. I had the students report how much they spent on their textbook, uh, how much they used their textbook, and also what they thought of the textbook. So that's a survey, and then I also compared grades in the course. Uh, And then to get an idea of how they did before the course, I got their high school GPAs. I found that they, well, not surprisingly, they spent a lot less money in the open source textbook. And I asked them to estimate, you know, if you printed it out, estimate paper and ink costs, or if you bought a bound copy, estimate that, uh, or if you had to buy a tablet because you felt like that was the best way to read it, and you know, estimate those costs as well. So they spent a lot more, obviously, on the commercial textbook. As far as use and perceptions, it was about the same. They had the same ratings of quality. And this was a nice addition to the literature because a lot of the studies beforehand that were really informative but we're limited in that they ask students, okay, you're taking Econ 101 now and you have an open source textbook, compare it to your commercial textbooks you've used before. And you'd be asking somebody to compare their Econ textbook with what they took last semester in history or sociology or chemistry, and it's it's a different beast. And different comparisons, but also self-report of stuff over time becomes a lot weaker. Uh, yeah, that makes sense to me. And and you also tend to like what you have right now. You know, so what this was students asking right now, what do you think of the textbook you're using? And then comparing different students. 
one of the things that I liked about this was uh, there's a kind of a be the change kind of feeling that I have here. Like you're not comfortable with the commercialization of education. There are alternatives, but we need to make a legitimate comparison and find some measurements that we can agree upon are meaningful about these alternatives. So that's something that I appreciated. What I'm interested in, you know, you are one of the variables held constant in this. You you are teaching in the fall and teaching in the spring. And what was it like trying? I mean, you had to come to decisions. Uh, the books are different. So how do you control the directions that you're giving them regarding or recommendations regarding how to use the books? When did you call to use for the books? Was the material that you asked them to read about in this sec in this book? highlighting it differently than this other book and then you i'm sure you probably have this internal like am i making sure that i myself am not acting differently between these two semesters so how did you navigate those complications of trying to be a variable that you're supposed to hold constant oh yeah and this is uh it's it's a pro and a, it's a strength and a weakness of scholarship of teaching and learning research which is basically the same as action research for k-12 teachers except at the post-secondary level is you're the researcher, so you have special insight into your classrooms, but you're also, that, that's also the confound, right? That's also, I'm not naive to what's going on. And there is, of course, that concern, am I teaching differently? I will say, <laughs> if anything, I wouldn't have been teaching as well with the open source textbook because I was super pregnant <laughs> as the, compared to the spring. So... Uh, I wasn't quite as energetic and engaged because I was exhausted. And I actually gave birth um, two days after grades were entered in the fall. And and I'd also started a new position. I, I got a tenderline position. So it was like, personally, I feel like even if I had wanted to teach better <laughs> with the open source textbook, I don't know if uh, that would have even been possible. So when I converted my course to the open source textbook, one thing I did is I tried to make it as similar. I know a lot of times converting to an open source textbook is a great opportunity for uh, doing a course overhaul and restructuring and customizing and blending your class. And that's awesome. And there's lots of studies on that. But I really wanted to control it so the biggest difference would be that one semester there was a commercial textbook and another semester there was an open source textbook. The One of the things that I actually appreciated about your writing specifically was it was really easy to read your literature. For the open source textbook adoption paper, that one I was extra careful to be as non-technical as possible because I knew it was not to a psych audience or an ed research audience. It was a very broad, I mean, it's an open learning, which is a really broad journal. So what is the, uh, if there is a kernel of takeaway, someone, what do you want people to take away after having uh, consumed this research? What's the message? Well, I would say that my study in conjunction with numerous other studies, I've actually I did a, another meta-analysis, this time looking at open source textbook adoption. So I included my study and then every study I could find that was similar to it. And I believe I found 25 different studies that qualified. And 
in the meta-analysis with over 100,000 students overall, there was no difference. So I think if you look at that and you look at so many other studies, there's one or two where learning seems to be lower with an open source textbook, but one study is just that. It's one study. So even, you know, my... My study is just one study. And if you look at the research syntheses that I've done on this, the pretty clear take-home message is that open source textbooks reduce the financial burden of a college education uh, without any real impact on learning in terms of a difference between a commercial textbook. That is a very practical, direct, controllable factor that most post-secondary instructors have, that they can help their students achieve their college goals by using an open source textbook, provided that there is one in that particular area. The work in K-12 really needs to be expanded on. It's, it is starting to take off. And actually, I have a few citations for you. I saw your tweet this morning. In, in my meta-analysis review, I only could find one K-12 through study that met my inclusion criteria. Um, and actually, it's it's kind of a discussion my reviewers whether I should even include it, just because that population is so different because they don't pay for their textbooks. And there's only one study. I originally thought I'd have a cluster of them, and I could look at them separately and then look at... What, why, do you, why do you think that there is this gap in research for the effect of... Uh, open source material with the K-12 community because um, making university and post-secondary education more accessible to people is good full stop, period, okay. But there's also this financial crunch on um, what K-12 can do with the resources they have available. And I feel like liberating some of the investment that they have to make on commercial textbook products, which is considerable. We looked at that research yeah. a while back with a Chatter Chatterjee yeah. um, in 2018. And it's, it's a huge fraction of their budgets going into textbooks. So we can liberate that money to do something else. That's a big deal also. So why, so why do we not have the research to help them do some of that? Well, one reason is that researchers tend to be at universities. So if you hear about a new initiative on your campus or you want to do a study with your own classroom, most of the studies that I've come across were instructors doing their own classrooms. Not all of them, but I would say a, a good portion of them. Or they were instructional designers who had a colleague who let them use their data. It gets more complicated with K-12 through because with K-12, through you don't have researchers in the building necessarily who are hearing about things and thinking like, oh, you know, we should really study that or we should really have the have a empirical comparison of that. So it's just kind of, the nature of being on a college campus makes it more likely that somebody's going to be thinking, I need to do my dissertation and I've heard there's an in this initiative on my campus. Maybe I could look into that for my dissertation. So that's one reason. The other big reason, which I think is a huge motivating factor, is that K-12, the user doesn't see the cost. I, I, I have never seen the budget for my kid's school. I mean, I'm sure I could if I really wanted to dig for it, but I have a feeling if I got sent home a bill saying, here's how much your kids' textbooks cost, and every other parent got that, and I had to write a check, 
I have a strong suspicion that there would be a lot more research in K through 12 because people would really be clamoring to have it looked at. The little bit of research that has been done is similar to the post-secondary research that it's, it's just as effective. Now, just to be, uh, I don't know, contrarian or, um, there was no significant differences in terms of student gain between one textbook or another. Are you confident you would see a loss in gain if you just didn't use a textbook at all? If there's no difference, if there's no difference between these two textbooks, maybe textbooks don't matter. That, yeah, honestly, that is a, that's a really good question. That's something that I, I pointed out in my meta-analysis is that one reason we're not seeing a difference is maybe textbooks just aren't that important. Yeah. And really all this time and energy we're putting into it isn't that critical. I mean, if you think about malleable factors in student learning, the number one is the number one predictor of student success is the student. You know, their background knowledge, their motivation, uh, their prior training, and, and that's different than background knowledge. That's knowing just kind of how school culture works and knowing how to interact with faculty and all these unspoken rules. Yeah, it kind of speaks to how to use, how to identify valuable resources from not valuable resources and how to use those resources in that academic education space. And so maybe part of that culture skill is knowing when I, this is a textbook that I actually need and it's going to be really good for me. And when to say this textbook is a waste of my time and I need to do something else in order to prepare myself mm. to succeed. And so from an experimental standpoint, that, that, makes sense like we we should get that control data of like does it even matter at all but from an ethical perspective can can, can we like especially because you're working with convenience samples the thing is is my hunches and there's a, a hypothesis called the axis hypothesis that goes with this is that there is a small not non-zero but not large percentage of college students who really do need that textbook but really can't afford it and so they are benefited from the open source textbook thing is that is probably a fairly small percentage because these are the students who need the book or the materials in addition to going to class and hearing the professor um, and on top of that can't afford the textbooks. So they're the ones who really benefit from open source textbooks. So I think there really is a critical number of students who need that, uh, either for, you know, second language issues that, you know, they, they need the information again, because the information is so challenging. You know, I remember when I took statistics, I had to sit down with my textbook before class, go to class and then review my notes after class in order to get the material just because it was really challenging for me. I'm sure I had peers who probably could have never cracked open the textbook the whole semester and done fine, but I really needed it. Uh, there's been other classes where I barely read the textbook because it wasn't hard for me and going to class was plenty. So there are groups of students who really do need it. And one reason I think that is if you look at the differences in withdrawal rate. If a college course is using an open source textbook, you know, what my study found and what I found when I meta-analyzed all the studies I could find that had course withdrawal rates 
Uh, and then also even followed up with researchers and said, hey, do you have your withdrawal rate information that I can include? There was a significantly lower withdrawal rate with an open source textbook. And I, what I think that is, is that that segment of students that needs the textbook but can't afford it, were realizing that they were behind in the class and they just did not have the money to get a hold of the materials. That's a, and I think that's a really important point. And in your paper, you pointed out that the GPAs of those who were withdrawing in the two treatment groups uh, were similar, but I, I may have overlooked it, but what was the GPA of the students who remained in the class? Did you see there were some students? So there actually was a significant difference. Uh, so the, the high school GPA of the students with the commercial textbook was a, a little lower than the students with the open source textbook. And it was about the same difference as their overall grade at the end. So I'm, I argue in my paper that once you factor in the previous GPA, it's the same. So the groups who remained were also had comparable GPAs. And so, so if that's true, cause that's not what I predicted, but if that's true, then which students are a student, which students are students who would withdraw in the commercial textbook, but who remain in the open source textbook. So if you've, as I think, if I heard you say a moment ago, the students who can't afford the textbook and don't have the support. And so they leave, uh, but are students in that state homogeneously distributed across all the SES strata of the class? There's very little data on students who withdraw from class because the thing is they withdraw. They're not there. You can't, it's hard to ask them. Uh, and the handful of studies that I have found have shown that the cost of a textbook is a reason students say they withdrew from a class. Uh, there's something else that I, I made in my notes that I wanted to ask because I just found it amusing maybe is the word to, to say there the in students who were comparing or who were reporting their perceptions of the texts that were available commercial versus open source um, you mentioned that uh, there were some things that were comparable so you know outcomes were similar and their usage cases were similar uh, but that the um, reports of their perception of the writing quality in the open source textbooks was slightly higher but the top comment on commercial textbooks was how well it was written. I found that to be really interesting. Those two things juxtaposed against each other. Yeah. I mean, I, one reason I thought of is there just wasn't much they could think of to write about <laughs> with what they liked. Um, they certainly had a lot to say about what they didn't like, but. Which actually kind of, kind of relates to this a little bit. I mean, one of the many concerns about adopting open source textbooks in the first place is that the primary mode to interact with them is digital. Right. Which yeah, is and that was the number one complaint about the open source textbook is it was electronic and I didn't want to pay for a paper copy. I'm like, look, you're not getting the free paper book. Students, right. stu hold on. Students, the number one complaint of students with the open source textbook was that it was digital. Yes. I overlooked that. Yeah. I believe it was. Yeah, that's what I got too. That's I mean, I, I read your paper two hours ago <laughs> to great depth. And that's what I took away as well. That that the they it was well written, but they would prefer not to have to access it digitally. Which makes sense. You also did a meta-analysis of comparing papers versus screens and you compiled lots of this research and generally we found that papers are superior to screens is that true is that generally true that yes true? yes so looking aggregating over the studies and these were all randomized experiments so you know the gold standard in research that 
there was a paper control and a, a screen version. And in my studies, the paper and the screen conditions had to be the same. So this was a little more sterile than real life, but you know, they were not allowed to have access to the internet. It's not like now where I walk by students studying and they have their phone next to them. And, but I found that overall there was a benefit of paper over screens in terms of comprehension. And it's the same if you're looking at the memory for what you read. So more literal comprehension, just um, memorizing it, but not really thinking about it. And it's similar for inferential comprehension, where you're actually putting together ideas and having to th come up with a conclusion that is not explicitly stated in the text, but supported by the text. Honestly, that surprised me a little bit. I thought going into this that students would do the same. You know, my PhD work was on the psychology of reading, and I've gotten back into it the past few years with my faculty position. And just thinking about the theories of reading, it didn't make sense to me that reading from a screen or paper, if all else is the same, would make a difference. But, you know, I had a lot of students say how they felt like they learned better from paper or they didn't want an electronic textbook. Because even before I, I got into OER, I would encourage students to get the ebook because it's so much cheaper. And so many of my students were like, no, I just, I, I just don't like the ebook. I really want the paper. I'm like, okay, that's another $100, but that's... But it's a not wasted $1,200, right? Yeah, apparently it was not wasted. Well, I mean, a book you don't read is worthless. Right, right. exactly. Or exactly. a course you fail is a wasted $900. So, yeah, yeah, so. yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, so the, what, uh, the, what jumped out to me in your meta-analysis, because your conclusions are consistent with the other stuff that we've discussed and read, and that's all fine. But the, what I wanted to ask was your inclusion criteria was 2008 to 2018. Our presentation of material in the digital format is much more immature than the centuries we've been, able to, we've been able to spend finding the right fonts and the right margins and the right organization and all of the things that go into making material presentable and consumable on the printed page. And a lot of that has been just straight ported over into the digital space. And so did your reviewers bring up or uh, what's, your, what's your thoughts on comparing something that is a digital material in 2008 compared to 2018 and their usability so that it's not that it is on a screen, but that it is in a less productive format for that, for that setting. And we are still learning what that looks like. What, how does that factor in? Well, well, first I wanted to clarify, I didn't look at the data publication and how the findings would change, but there were actually two other, this was the year of meta-analyses between paper and screens, like literally three came out, including mine, <laughs> but our, all of our inclusion criteria <laughs> were a little different and our analysis approaches were a little different and our specific research questions varied, but we all came down to the same conclusion that paper had a benefit over screens for comprehension. Two of them looked at the date of publication, and one said that as time is going on, the gap between paper and screens is narrowing. The other one said the other thing. They said it's actually getting worse. So <laughs> I, yeah, I have not been able to really sit down and tease out the methods to figure out why, but to say it's inconclusive is putting it mildly.
I w- I'm going to I'm going to conjecture. I th- I think that paper and screen are too big of bins. I think that saying that all screen all screen and all digital media is too heterogeneous to lump together, and it sounds like that's kind of where you're going as well. So it uh, the whole point with a meta analysis is you are consolidating the work from dozens of other studies and thousands of other participants and you're trying to simplify things to a single effect size that people can take home and understand because there's so much research out there that even professional researchers can't follow all of it you certainly can expect the general public who has jobs outside of academia and doesn't read research for a living to keep up with it So that's where it gets tricky as I'm going through studies and trying to figure out how to define digital tools and how to define the benefits that screens have that paper doesn't have and try to figure out what is the best approach for um, looking at tools that screens have that paper doesn't. I have some follow-up questions about that in terms of um, the other two meta-analyses that you referred to earlier that we have not read. So I'm super happy that you're here to tell us about them. Um, in your study, you described using a very sterile environment where the screen was essentially kind of like a locked browser and that there was no internet access, there were no distractions, there were no other things going on other than reading the documents. But then one of the alternative meta-analysis says the distance between screens and paper is widening, and then the other said the distance between screens and paper is narrowing. Were those, uh, were, were the devices controlled? Were people reading on their personal devices? Were they reading on multi, multi-tasking tooled devices? Were they reading on academic assigned devices? Were they reading in public computer terminals? Like, in those two different findings, was the access of device controlled? You know, I actually have not gone through their methodologies really carefully. Uh, I know that the one by Kong and all that was published in Computers and Education, they just looked at inferential comprehension, first of all, so that's a little different than my study. Their inclusion criteria were similar to mine. Uh, The other meta-analysis, they included quasi-experiments, so not as controlled environments, but... (laughs) That's a big deal. (laughs) I think that's a big deal. Yeah, but they also separated them out, but I can't remember, to be honest. Uh, I'm interested, for my my part in this, I I am not... I am, I'm a pretty anti-screen individual. I don't know, the goal of the reading, what do I want the goal of the reading to be? And then choose the format that is best suited to my goals. That's, that's what I, that's what I, I want to choose. And, and paper ends up being the, the one that resonates with me for my pursued goals more often than not. I'm interested in how this plays out, of course, in the K-12 public education space, when teachers are choosing to let their kids access and read from their own personal devices versus devices issued to them by the by the school versus public devices that they don't have any ownership or, or emotional connection to. And I want to see where those lay out. So if there, if there is a closing of the gap between paper and screen, but that is not consistent 
amongst all accesses, then we need to make decisions conscious about how the different tools are supporting our goals. Well, I mean, one point I'd like to make is that if they were given a book, like I was given a book in K through 12 school, that wasn't their book. And they had, they weren't able to write notes in it or highlight it or mark it up in any way. Whereas a screen device, depending on the particular app you're using and the software involved, even if you're renting it, they'll usually let you mark it up. That said, there's limited research on whether or not marking it right. up even makes a difference, but that's a whole other topic. Dr. Clinton, we really appreciate you spending your time talking with us and sharing your research and helping us understand how, what all of this means for uh, reading and education. If there are listeners who want to consume more of the things you've created or more of the research you've done or just what you write, uh, where could they find you on the interwebs? Uh, well, I'm on Twitter, the underscore E underscore Clinton. Uh, I also have my faculty directory website where I keep my articles updated pretty regularly. Or you can certainly email me if you have any questions about anything I've written or if you want a full text copy of something and you don't have access to it. So it's virginia.clinton at und.edu. Intent Matters. Our second segment is going to look at what teachers can do to better support the metacognition of their students. And so we read identifying teachers' supports of metacognition through classroom talk and its relation to growth and conceptual learning. And that's by Zapita Hlutokowski, Partika, Noakes Malak, and that was published in 2019. I really liked the uh, methodology of this paper. What they were writing about is what phrases did teachers use when talking to their students about their thinking? Let's track what teachers are saying, and then we'll see what are they saying in classrooms where students show a lot of growth versus what they're saying in classrooms when students don't show so much growth. And so what I thought was interesting in their approach is they pulled a bunch of uh, classroom observation videos from some existing data set of like over a thousand different classroom videos. And so they set some criteria for what they pulled. But what's important is the teachers in these videos had no idea they were going to be observed for this purpose. And so their definition of which classrooms are showing a lot of growth, which classrooms are showing less growth was totally immaterial to what they were seeing because they were working with an existing data set, which I thought was a strength of the paper. I agree. So it's not part of the paper, but there's this underlying importance of having contributing to this, this body. There is a database of teacher recordings and it exists so that Researchers can look at them and draw conclusions. And I think that's really great. It's not a special agenda. It's not about this particular teacher. It's not about this particular this, that, or the other. The body of recordings exists. And if you want to use them for research, you can go and use them for research. And I think that's pretty fantastic. Uh, yeah, and this, uh, this video repository is supported by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, if I remember correctly. So they had all this video. And they were interested in metacognition of these teachers. So they needed to watch the videos and give them some kind of metacognition instructional score or ranking. Uh, and so they decided to break up 
aspects of metacognition into different categories that they can look for in the videos. Uh, so there's a lot that goes into coding the metacognitive prompts and scaffolds that the teachers are providing, and we don't really need to get into all of that. But what's important is they were looking at how are the teachers helping students think about what they know? How are they helping the students think about their progress in the classroom? And how are they think helping students reflect on their progress afterwards? And so there's some pretty clearly defined details that if that's what you care about, go read the paper. But there were a few categories where they saw meaningful differences. Now, they couldn't identify any causation, but they had high conceptual growth classrooms and low conceptual growth classrooms. So let's look at what were the behaviors exhibited by the teachers in the high conceptual growth classrooms. Yeah. That's really what we're going to do. Here. And there was one graph that really stood out to me. It was figure two. Um, that was a series of paired bars that were comparing how often different kinds of prompts were happening in the classroom. And what I found to be interesting was that most of those bars were the same, were, were really similar between the two, the two situations, but there were a handful of pairings that were different where you saw a particular thing happening more in a classroom. There wasn't It wasn't symmetrical. There were just some things that happened more in high-growth classrooms. Uh, and one of those things was the teacher uh, asking the students to reflect on what they already know. The personal knowledge of the student was evoked and referenced and considered more by the teacher. The teacher asked them to consider what they already know in the high conceptual game classroom more often. And that, that, that continued to matter even as students continue to learn more on a topic and continue to gain competency in particular skills was continuing to reference that self-evaluation mattered. And that, that was um, something that is, matters to me as a teacher because it can feel a little bit rote or a little bit um, redundant to continue to prompt students to evaluate their progress when we've been doing that for a little while. It can feel like maybe I need to stop doing that. And this felt like data that said, don't stop doing that. Right. Um, two of the pieces that were really connected to each other was monitoring and evaluating. So we, I don't think we've said this yet, but this is done in the context of a middle school math class. So these kids are thinking about what do you know about solving these problems? What do you know about these math issues? What do you know about these math operations and relationships and so on? But it wasn't about the math so much as the, pro the teacher prompting how the students are thinking about the approach and monitoring do you feel you understand what's happening now? And evaluation, did I do that well? Those two kinds of prompts, which are not the same as each other, but similar, were also found at a higher rate in the high conceptual growth classroom. This to me doesn't feel like, I mean, it was a meaty paper, but it doesn't feel like there's meaty takeaways. There is metacognitive, metacognitive thinking matters. And there are some metacognitive behaviors Metacognitive supporting behaviors teachers exhibit in high growth classrooms. These are them. I agree those are the takeaways. But uh, we have always, on this show, tried to refrain successfully, I think, in just telling teachers to do more of something. Do more is the low-hanging fruit, but we already have many demands on our time and many demands on our choices. So what I'm trying to extract from this data is the fact that there are only increases in particular categories for high-growth classrooms tells me that they are not doing things that don't fit into these prompts. 
because these don't add up to 100%, like not even close. These add up to like 20% of all of the statements that are made to students. Uh, yeah, that was true. And so what they're, what I'm actually thinking that I'm seeing in this data is that our interaction with students are not declarative statements. They're not just simply observations of what students are doing. They're not just simply redirections of behaviors, but that a greater quantity of my interactions with students are about metacognitive topics. And so it's not about doing more of particular things, but it's about increasing the proportion of my interactions that are related to these things. One thing that stuck out to me that I'm just gonna start talking about is in the framing uh, category, there are particular ways to frame their thought processes that are specific to the problems. There's ways to frame their thought processes that are specific uh, to general structures of problems versus domain-specific. Here are mathematical thoughts that you need to have. And the high-growth classroom showed a marked increase in general domain prompting. That finding also resonated with me because it generally is consistent with what we know about regular old schema development in, in people that the more connections that you can make between topics, the more robust the understanding of all of those topics will be. So if you have this concept that is illustrated in the circumstances, and then you evoke or prompt them to go back and think about other circumstances where this is relevant, you're making all of those specific circumstances stronger while promoting transference of these ideas across many aspects of, 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 the, of the grander discipline ask questions to draw connections, ask them to consider other, like consider something that we discussed in the past, how might that apply here? Draw those connections from a bigger, bigger discipline. Also be active. Uh, one of the things that they said is um, di like literally directing students to think was one of the behaviors found in high cognitive growth classrooms. Uh, both classes had prompting, which was asking questions where the thinking is implied, but just directly think about this thing now. Uh, that was a that was a directive of the uh, high growth classrooms that um, was not as prevalent in the low growth classrooms, which I thought surprising. I kind of I I'm I'm a big fan of really um, responsive and adaptive questioning in my classroom. And so I would have said, I, I don't want to just tell a student to think that seems so authoritative and, and flat, right? Yeah. yeah, it seems so flat. But if I, you know, I, maybe I'm being uh, maybe I'm being a little assumptive here that if I tell them to think first and then ask questions, they'll be better prepared to ask the questions mm -hmm. because they will have already explored a wider part of their schema. Whereas if I ask them a, a question, they will be searching specifically for connections within that domain. Whereas if I ask them to just think, uh, the, they will have to decide what is important to think about. So I might be underserving my adaptive questions by not giving them some just flat out think time first. Make better mistakes. How was the beer? I love this beer. Me too. <laughs> Me too. And I've had this uh, this uh, relationship. Timbleton Rye, I, 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 I say I grew up. What I meant to say is I started drinking in Iowa. And so uh, I see this 
Boulevard, uh, limited edition, rye on rye. It's an ale. Well, dang it, it's an ale. But it's Timbleton, so I guess I'll give it a shot. I can't be disappointed because I'm not trying to. Go. It's not the whiskey I'm comparing right. it to. It's a it's an ale, which I'm not really super impressed about. Aged in whiskey barrels, which I am generally impressed about. Mm. So how does this go over? Well, but it's got so many of the characters of Templeton, which is remarkable to me. It's got the light color, and so some of the some of the early bite in the in the flavor, and then especially some of the late tones of that that sharpness, that crisp, clean sharpness of the back half. This feels like if Templeton was a beer, it would be this. It, Plus, it's got an APV of like eight thousand. Like it's so high. It's so high. Yeah, it's twelve point nine. Cheers, Boulevard! You Cheers. did some good work. All right. We had a great time. Thanks to Dr. Virginia Clinton for being our guest this week. And to thank all of you out there who comment and respond and give us leads because we love uh, looking at discussing what you think is important. So as we pursue growth, continue to discuss research and struggle well. <laughs>